Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Perlin, your Monday host on Vermont Viewpoint. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope you had a good weekend. My daughter, who is 13, had an eighth grade dance on Saturday night or on uh, Friday night and quite exciting. And I was thinking when I was at an eighth grade dance, uh, Crimson and Clover was the song and uh, probably they weren't playing that uh, at my daughter's dance. Uh, some new music that I don't even know about. My morning started the same as Getting up, two Norwegian elk hounds have to go out. I go out into the barn as well and feed the sheep, get them water and hay, and they're quite happy to see me in the morning. And then beautiful drive here today, pretty easy, from St. Albans to Waterbury. Here in historic Waterbury, WDEV, just a great station, a lot of history with so many uh, public uh, mus- musicians and all of that. It's just a wonderful place to be. Today we have got a great show. Uh, we're, I'll be starting with Larry Christ uh, and Bill Young. They're talking about uh, Vermont's child protection system. Is the system broken? And we'll uh, we'll talk about that. At ten o'clock, uh, we'll visit with the mayor of Burlington, Moreau Weinberger. Get a little bit of insight on the election last Tuesday, and you know what are the goals for the future of Burlington. There was a little bit of a political swing there. And at 10.30, we'll talk with Jesse Keel, who's with Hill Dean, which is the home of Robert Todd Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln a long time ago, uh, and find out what's going on down there. Just a beautiful, beautiful uh, mansion, really, in Manchester. Uh, so I want to uh, welcome... Now, uh, Larry Christ and Bill Young, welcome to uh, Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and hello, Bill. Hey, good morning. Yeah, so uh, first thing I'll say is uh, I met you both uh, several years ago. We did a Travels with Charlie with Charlie Papillo uh, down in southern Vermont, and we were talking about this issue, and I thought we'd have it all solved by now, but... We don't, I guess. No, no, we don't. Actually, when you go back to to Travels with Charlie, we were looking at the overall system of child protection in Vermont. This was one piece of it at the time, but we had not really delved into this piece to figure out, does it work or not work? So this is is a few years later with a much better sense of uh, the efficacy of the system. Yeah, you both have a long time experience and uh, professional uh, careers with the state of Vermont. Uh, can you give us a little background and then we'll get more into the issue? Why don't we start with Bill because he's a senior member. <laughs> <laughs> very, very senior. <laughs> well, just quickly, I worked for 13 years in corrections, ending up by taking a leave of absence from my job in probation and parole to developed a statewide plan to respond to issues of sexual assault and child sexual abuse, a plan I later implemented locally as the director of the local social services office within the old SRS agency, the predecessor agency to DCF. 
during that time, I also served as a member of the Governor's Commission at the time called the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women. Um, after becoming the SRS Commissioner in 1985, I implemented the only statewide comprehensive response to child sexual abuse in the United States um, and uh, oversaw significant improvements in our child care system as well as in adoptions, licensing, foster care, and family supports. I, I should also say, of course, that no one can claim that they alone accomplish such system changes. It always takes takes a group of people, and I was helped in all those efforts by some very competent and dedicated people. After retiring, I formed a consulting business, ran a residential substance abuse program, and finally retired in 2014. For the past almost five years, I've been working to assist Larry in advocating for reforms in our child protection system. So um, I've always viewed the opportunity to work uh, for the state and particularly to work within um, as the as the, so as the commissioner of SRS is a just a, the most wonderful opportunity in my life. Hard work, but that's why they call it work. Off to you, Larry. Okay, and unlike Bill, I'm a transplant to Vermont. Um, I moved here in 1986. I was recruited by a stellar commissioner at the time. His name was Bill Young, and <clears throat> I worked as the uh, the first director of the division for child care licensing and foster care licensing uh, in SRS, and then went on over a number of years to become the deputy commissioner of the Department of Health and the commissioner of the Department of Aging and Disabilities, and then finished out my career as the director of public health preparedness and anti-terrorism for the, for the health department. And I thought I was retired at the time, um, but then went to work as the executive director of the American Red Cross for Vermont in the Upper Valley in New Hampshire. Um, retired again until I was uh, asked to get involved with a very small nonprofit called the Vermont Parent Representation Center. And uh, that's what I've been doing as the director for the last six or seven years. Um, VPRC, the Vermont Parent Representation Center, is about 12 years old. It was founded by professionals from the, <clears throat> the child protection, child welfare um, community and was intended to assist both parents and children who were trying to navigate um, the system, which now is you know, referred to as the Department for Children and Families. And that's the background, and that's a little bit about this organization. It's a very small nonprofit, but it's been involved in some significant reviews and studies and services. So, Larry, you and uh, Bill and others put together a report. It's the second report that you've done on this topic. This is uh, Broken System, Broken Promises. Let's just get into the meat of it. What You saw a problem. What was the problem? Well, we weren't sure we saw a problem. We okay. wanted to find out if there was a problem. And the system we're talking about is really called the substantiation of child abuse and neglect system and also the child protection registry. And this is the system that really investigates reports of child abuse and neglect. And if people are determined to have <coughs> committed child abuse, then they are placed on what is called the child protection <coughs> registry. That registry, if you're on it, limits uh, what individuals can do professionally as far as work, as far as professional credentialing, 
um, free association. You can't, if you're on that registry, as an example, you can't volunteer at a local school. If you are employed in any of the roughly one-third of the jobs in the state of Vermont that relate to children in some way, you can't work in those jobs. So it's, it is, from my perspective, it's the most powerful tool that any state agency has. And we wanted to see, based on, on some initial information, we wanted to see how well does this system work. The system is confidential, so there are no records you can go to to see, okay, what did the system do? And the only way that we could find out how the system operated is if we assisted people in their appeals, because that then allowed us to see inside of the system, how does it work? My expectation was that we would lose every appeal we took, because I had been part of this system decades ago and saw how it worked and how it was supposed to work. And as you've seen, Brad, from the report, our experience was just the opposite. We have been successful with every one of the appeals we've taken. And that's where the term broken system comes from, because it doesn't matter how good an organization is at assisting people. No one is successful all the time unless the system's broken. What... What is the, uh, our kids are t- getting taken away from parents. They're being investigated. They lose their kids and maybe not always, uh, properly investigated. Well, what we found in over the course of two and a half year study review, uh, of, with appeals is that roughly of the people that we assisted of, of which there have been 30 cases now, half of the people had their children removed because of the allegations for some period of time. In some cases, it was a few weeks. In some cases, it was a year to a year and a half. But what happens is a report is made to DCF. An investigator goes out, does an investigation. Then the investigator and their supervisor make a decision as to whether the person is guilty or not. That's it. There's no judge. There's no court. There's no, there's no other group that you go to other than in a few cases where the cases are so severe that it has to go to a couple of other people in DCF to look at, to sign off. But by and large, 700 to 1,000 cases a year are substantiated in Vermont, and that's done by a worker and their supervisor. You then have an opportunity to appeal to the department But the appeal is not the kind of appeal we think about. You don't get a lawyer. It's not reinvestigated. And the person who hears the appeal, their job isn't to decide whether this really happened or not. It's to decide whether the department followed its policies and the law. They could have the wrong conclusion. That almost doesn't matter. If they follow their policies, then you are substantiated and you have to appeal to the Human Services Board. And that is an entirely different world. It is incredibly complex. Very few people do it. And if you're going to hire a competent advocate, you're going to spend between ten dollars and $50,000 doing this. So what we did was we started working with the first cases that came to us. We said we're going to take the first, I think it was 15 cases, and do them pro bono. There's no charge to people. Uh, We didn't screen any. We didn't turn any down. We took the first 15. At the end of 15, when we realized that we had been successful having these these substantiations overturned, 
we said there must be something wrong with the process that we're using because this can't be right. We Every one of these, the state can't have made a mistake. So we added five more cases. Same outcome. Then we added five more cases. We are now at the point where we have completed 30 appeals. All 30 have been either overturned or withdrawn by the state. That's a 100% rate of overturns. It's impossible for a system that works properly to have that kind of outcome. And the last thing I would add is imagine what would happen if someone was to go into a hospital, pull 30 cancer cases, and realize that all 30 had been misdiagnosed. That hospital would have been shut down. It would have had federal and state people in there helping to straighten it out. But in Vermont, relative to this system, there is no change. The system doesn't change. It continues year after year to do exactly the same thing so that we now have a registry in Vermont, a child protection registry or a child abuse registry that has 25,000 names, plus or minus. That's one, statistically, one of every 18 adult Vermonters, in theory, is on that list. Wow. So, Bill, you were, as you described, uh, involved with child protection for a career, um, retired. And what, what drew you back into this? Well, you know, the, um, <clears throat> that the thing that really drew me into it, the thing that I think it is helpful to, to the public to understand is the stories. Um, so I'll talk a little bit quickly about what drew me into it, but I'll start. I'll start with a story. Um, you know, a parent is you know substantiated for physically harming a teenager. Um, uh, it's overturned by the Human Services Board, and, and as part of this review process that Larry's talking about, um, uh, due to a lack of evidence, conflicting medical opinion that was persuasive, and a persuasive. Uh, recantation by the teenager to a therapist. But in the meantime, the parent lost their nursing job, their nursing certification, their housing, their children. They were charged criminally before the substantiation was overturned and criminal charges were dropped, but only after the parent became destitute and was living in emergency housing. Those are the stories that Drew, drew me into this, and I have to say reluctantly, when, when Larry first contacted me in 2018 and described some of the things he was beginning to see as a new executive director in the system, um, you know, my first response as a former commissioner was to support DCF. Uh, many of the cases he described seemed unbelievable, and they may seem unbelievable to the to our listeners, but I said, you know, these seem very serious, Larry, but I have to tell you, based on my years 20 years in the system, uh, I don't believe them. Prove it. And, uh, and Larry said, all right, I will. When do you want to start? That's what, that's what got me into trouble. And over about two months of reviewing questions and asking a lot of probing questions, I do know something about reviewing child abuse and neglect investigations, um, and, and a lot of discussion and phone calls and texts and emails, I realized that these cases and system failures and abuses are real. Uh, and that at the least, hundreds of children and parents each year are being harmed by them. And, you know, I, I've always believed, still believe, that children have a right to live their lives free from abuse and neglect, and that the state has an important role to play in protecting them, and, and at the least, an enlightened self-interest in assisting parents, often poor and often single moms, 
and often in desperate circumstances to um, uh, to help make lives better and support families wherever you can. Um, but uh, it has to be done right. But all your decisions, whether you substantiate or not, there's a risk everywhere. You have to be able to consistently and accurately determine what is child abuse and what is not. You have to follow the law. You should be able to follow commonly accepted Vermont values, honesty, and competency, you know, in our government. I got involved in this effort with Larry because I feel compelled to get involved. And these kinds of stories, um, and it's been constant, you know, for for five years, every week or two weeks, Larry calls me up and says, hey, Bill, you're not going to believe this one. And he describes another story. And it's been going on and on. And uh, I just felt compelled uh, to get involved and to um, and to try to support efforts and advocate for efforts to change this system. It's a small state. Um, uh, we should be able to do that. So I'm not hearing that either of you are discounting the need to protect children. That's first and fundamental. And you've had careers that have done that. Um, you've gotten maybe for lack of better word, um, the, the squeaky wheel, the outraged people have come to you because they feel like there's been a, um, injustice in the system and, and you've done some discovery and you found that, that there has been. And so, uh, Larry, we'll go back to you. Broken system, broken promises. Uh, what are, what are some of the key findings from this three year effort that, that led you to, to, the, your conclusions. Well, I, I will get to that very quickly, Brad, but I want to echo something you just said. From my perspective, and I believe I speak for Bill as well, our goal isn't to discount the system of protecting children. What we're saying is the current system doesn't protect children because any system that is not able to determine whether abuse or neglect has occurred and names the wrong people as the abusers is also not naming the right people as abusers. A system doesn't do something really well one way and really poorly the other. So my feeling is the findings that we have, if the legislature does its job and changes this system, our children will be better protected because our state will be better able to determine who is abusing and who isn't abusing. So as examples, the current system is antiquated. It wasn't created for what we use it for today. As Bill can attest, this system's over 40, the, the underpinning laws are over 40 years old during a time when the registry was not open to employers. Bill Young was the only person <laughs> and his staff were the only people who could see that registry. And that was to be used for licensing purposes. The legislature, in its wisdom and its desire to make sure that employers weren't employing abusers, opened the registry to employers. When that happened, all of the rules needed to change with it, including due process, because now people were being precluded from working in a job, not being precluded just from not getting a license from the state. The laws didn't change. Their due process is not existent in the current system. It really isn't. That's one. Two, misdiagnosis has real-world implications in this system now. You can lose your job, your career. You can be a physician. You can be a pediatrician. You can be a counselor. 
and never be able to work again because of the misdiagnosis that happens. There's a presumption of guilt. You're determined by, you know, a line worker and their supervisor who have an overload of cases to work with, and they may investigate you for a week or two weeks or maybe three weeks. That's who makes the decision. After that, you're guilty. You have to prove that you didn't do something, which we all know is not an easy thing to do, to prove a negative. And the fact is that the system, it's not that it's bad people in the system. It's that the system doesn't work. And no matter how good someone is in this job, they cannot be successful because the system is designed not to let them be successful. We want to see the system improved. That's what our study was about. It's what all of the recommendations are about, and it's what House Bill 169 attempts to address. Okay. Um, we are talking this morning with Larry Chris, Vermont Parent Representation Center, and Bill Young, former Commissioner of Social and Rehabilitation Services, which is now um, DCF, Department of Children and Families. This is uh, Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Furlan, your host. If you have uh, want to join the conversation, we're at 802-244-1777. We'd love to hear your comments. And we will be getting uh, uh, in the second part of this show into, uh, Larry, into the legislative uh, part of this. I still want to get, we're going to take a break shortly, but I want to get into the study a little bit more about what some of the, the broken system, broken promises, and then We'll look for the cure uh, after that. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your Monday host for Vermont Viewpoint here on WDEV in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, came to Waterbury as a child. My grandfather was psychiatrist from the late 20s until the 60s, and he probably saw it all at, over at the state hospital. Talking now with Larry Chris, Vermont Parent Representation Center, and Bill Young, former Commissioner of Social and Rehabilitation Services, now Department of Children and Families. If you want to join us, uh, callers, 802-244-1777. Want to get back, to, um, Larry, you know, we, we don't, I haven't heard examples quite of, of some of the, some of the cases. Can you give us sort of some of the background of what maybe outraged you, for lack of a better word? Um, I, I think the best way is really to give a short vignette on a number of cases. And the first case we worked with was of uh, a mother and father. They had a young child, uh, an infant, and the mother was nursing the infant in a rocking chair after being up all one night with the child and fell asleep and the baby fell out of her arms and the baby injured an arm. The mother was substantiated for child abuse because 
she couldn't show how the child broke the arm. She said, I fell asleep. I don't know what happened. That was enough. She was substantiated, and she didn't have anyone to advocate for her. Go forward three years, four years. The father from another marriage has two teenagers who move into their home. The system wanted to substantiate the father for allowing the teenagers to be in the presence of his wife, who had been substantiated for dropping an infant. We took the appeal. It was the very first one that came to us. And basically our presentation is this substantiation is based on something called risk of harm. And when you go to the law, risk of harm is very specific except for one category, which can be virtually anything. Anything that injures a child can be child abuse. And what we pointed out was, is it really likely that this mother is going to drop one of the teenagers <laughs> and mm. have them break a bone? And fortunately for us, we had a very good review officer who said, no, that's that's insane. That doesn't make any sense. These people were set to be on the registry because teenagers might be dropped by a mother. That's just one example. Another is a severely disturbed child makes a report about being abused while on a family outing gives great detail about being thrown down on a concrete floor, about being dragged up the stairs by being pulled by their hair, um, a whole host of things about being choked. By policy, the investigator is supposed to go to the scene, look at the scene, interview any witnesses that are presented. The investigator did none of those things. The investigator simply took the word of the child, wrote it up as though it was evidence, and substantiated the parent. What we discovered when we did the appeal was that there was no concrete floor, <laughs> that there was a witness and, and another adult was present who was never contacted but was made known to the department. We also discovered that the child had told the child's therapist that he made the story up. The investigator didn't put that in the report. Basically, they went forward with a substantiation where they had no evidence at all, and in fact, they had evidence that it didn't happen. These are the kinds of things that began to show us that there were serious problems with, with this system. Um, another is that parents had a seriously disturbed child who had a habit of setting fires in the house. And I don't remember whether it was the third house fire or the fifth house fire that the child said. The father said, I've had enough. You're getting a spanking. Spanked the child. Didn't leave any injuries. Didn't leave any marks. Spanked the child. The mother was present. The mother was substantiated for not stopping the father from spanking the child. Now, it is not illegal in Vermont to spank your child. Is it good parenting? I don't think so. I never spanked my children. I was spanked as a child. It never did any good. <laughs> in fact, it was just the opposite, frankly. But in this case, this mother, who was an educator, was going to be put on the list, would lose her job because she didn't stop her husband from spanking the child. We went in and presented, look, this is the law. This is what actually happened. And guess what? 
There was a witness who said, yes, she did stop him. She's the one who, in fact, said, that's enough. That's enough for this situation. The worker never interviewed the mother to find out whether she actually stopped the father from his, in his spanking. This was, these are consistent things uh, that we found in case after case after case. In other cases, we found that evidence, information that was presented as evidence, turned out none of it turned out to be true. When we would go back and actually talk to the witnesses who supposedly said X, Y, and Z, they would say, I didn't say that. Or this is what I said in this context, and it's been taken completely out of the context. Now, is that because the people doing the investigations are bad? No. It's because the system that they're given to work with, there are no positive incentives. If you come in and decide and you do a thorough job and you say there's no abuse or neglect here, nobody pats you on the back. Nobody says great job. If you do that and something happens to that child later, it's your fault. All of the incentives are to substantiate people. The incentives are not there to actually do a thorough investigation and say, this is what I found, this is what I believe, there was no abuse. We're hoping to change that with H-169. Bill, I want to return to you. Thank you for that, Larry. Uh, Bill, this is uh, tricky. It sounds tricky to me because we obviously don't want to miss abuse, meaning if it's occurring. And I'm the investigator. A child tells me um, something occurred. I listen. I write down the notes. I was pushed down the stairs. I was, you know, put locked in my room. I was whatever. Um, and it may be true, and it may not be true. So, how how do you deal with the oversight bill of of determining what's what's real and what's not real, so that children are protected? Well, you know, the, 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 some of these situations seem to be very clear-cut, although um, some are not, and they're difficult but to discern. But I think, you know, I, I, SRS was a smaller agency. Um, uh, there were uh, uh, managers from top to bottom of the department that had a great deal of experience. There was a common understanding of what is child abuse and what is not. Uh, we constantly monitored cases. It's not to say that mistakes weren't made. Everybody makes mistakes. But what we're seeing is is systemic. And it concerns me that there seems to be Larry's right, it's these are these are systems issues and demand change to the system. But there seems to be an uh, almost an attitude of it's okay um, not to tell the truth or to skew evidence or to present false information um, because we're on God's side saving the children. But, of course, if abuse didn't occur and you take a child away from your parents, you're inflicting tremendous harm on both parents and the child. Um, and uh, it, it just seems that, I mean, that's why this does demand a system response. In some of the cases, this wasn't in the report, but there was one case that, as part of what happened, um, uh DCF found that an examining physician had concluded that an injury to a child, uh, you know, was, was abuse. But VCR, when, when the center is reviewing this and called the physician, he says, 
I didn't say that. What I said was, this is a typical childhood injury. It cannot be attributed to abuse. Now, I'm sorry, there's no way to skew this. Mm. That, was a, that was a lie. It was a lie. Um, and I think people feel like if I'm doing the right thing for the child, it's okay, whatever it takes, you know. And, um, and the system allows that to happen in some part because of, of structure. It's also a question of, um, you know, somebody once asked me in a, in a terrible instance of harm to a child, who's responsible for this? And I said, I am. Leaders are responsible for the actions of the people they're supposed to supervise. And, um, uh, but our current laws um, make it much easier for these kinds of the, the kind of things we see, Brad, they, they range from, you know, bumbling mistakes uh, to outright uh, falsehoods to skewing information, withholding evidence that would show a parent was, um, you know, didn't abuse their children. Um, uh, there are a, whole, a host of things that I think uh, what the report's recommendations, what we think this, this legislation that's been introduced will help to avoid. Um, there, there's never a quick fix to anything. But we think this law will go a long ways towards making it much more difficult for some of these things to happen. And um, uh, there's there's no question in my mind uh, that they are happening. And as Larry said, you know, we're not saying this is happening with the the the, the thirty, you know, three thousand plus cases that DCF, uh, you know, uh, investigates every year. The Eight or eight hundred to a thousand, they substantiate. But if there's something wrong with hundreds of them, you know that's not that's not. Oh well, everybody makes mistakes. We have to take a look at that for sure. Yeah, uh, we're talking this morning with Larry Christ and Bill Young, uh, and we're going to take a short break. Uh, Rich, hang on. We'll get to you on the phones uh, right after the break. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. Going to the phones now, uh, Rich from Starksboro joining our conversation. Good morning. I, I, this thing has really caught my ear. I think it's, to me, it seems like almost as uh, significant as the EB-5 scandal. But anyway, let's not go there any further. I'd like to say this in the most delicate way that I can. Um, there was a recent murder uh, in in Barry, I believe it was, of, of employees of children and families. And I, I can think I can get a little bit of understanding of maybe how that might have happened a little bit better based on what I'm finding here, but let's not go there any further. I would like to say that, uh, Governor Scott and the, and the rest of the folks, uh, in government leadership in the state really want our schools to be filled up with children. But with this going on and so forth, this unfair uh, approach, uh, maybe some folks may be reluctant to have children. I don't have any myself, so I don't know what uh, what it's like to have children, what your motivations are. But maybe there's some folks that might not want to have children based on the, the risk that they have of, uh, with this environment, having children. And thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for the call, Rich. Uh, you know, Certainly there are a lot of great, uh, people working in the system that are doing their best. Um, but we want to 
we want to make the system better. And, uh, both Larry and Bill, um, there is a legislative bill now, uh, H-169. Is that going to help? I, I hope. I hope that it, that it helps. It's, you know, it is one of these bills that is not based on opinion or good intention. It's based on data. It's based on facts. And House Bill 169 is a direct result of what we have learned in our study. And remember, these 30 out of 30 overturned cases were not my statement, not my decision. This was the Human Services Board. And it was DCF itself upon review that determined that these cases should have never been substantiated. So that's what's important. So House Bill 169 really contains many of the changes that we found needed to happen to make the system work. And I want to emphasize something. I think there is no more difficult job in state government in Vermont than to be a DCF investigator. It is incredibly difficult. It's hard work. It requires a lot of skill, a lot of training. But the system doesn't support those things. And the system drives investigators to move quickly, and there are no incentives for doing a great job. That's the problem. So House Bill 169 does, and and let me just add this one piece first. If folks really want to understand this issue, read the report. Broken system, broken promises. All they have to do is go to www.vtprc.org, or you can just Google Vermont Parent Representation Center, and it will take you to our homepage. The report is there, as well as our 2018 report doing an overview of the entire system. It's complex, but it's an easy read. So House Bill 169, to summarize it, Basically, it calls for centralizing the decision-making. Right now, these decisions are made by individual workers and supervisors scattered over 12 DCF districts in the state. You can be substantiated in one county and not substantiated in the other for exactly the same facts. That's not the way the system's supposed to work. The second thing is that it would require DCF to create a group of people whose job it is to become well-versed in the law, in the policies, and in the system itself to make these decisions, which is something that more or less existed when Bill (coughs) Young was commissioner because people like Fred Ober and I were involved in that process. This says, let's bring that back. Do it again. Make sure you have people who understand what they're looking at to be the people who make the decisions as opposed to a variety of people around the state who may or may not be skilled. It also creates a single standard of proof, which is a thing that I'm not going to get into in detail here. But Vermont has two totally different standards. DCF just has to gather information that would cause a reasonable person to think that maybe abuse did happen. But the moment you appeal to the Human Services Board, the state has to produce a preponderance of the evidence, a much higher standard. So you have investigators and supervisors who say, yeah, a reasonable person would say that this is, this is, might be abuse. But if they were told, no, no, it needs to be 50, at least 51% of the evidence needs to indicate this, they would probably give you a different answer on whether that's abuse or not. But the law has these two different systems. This would create one system 
Vermont right now is one of only four states that has stayed with the reasonable person standard. Because we all think we're reasonable people, but I guarantee you we don't all all agree on the same issue at the same time. Preponderance of evidence is the standard that's used throughout the country now, but not in Vermont. And it would clarify, 169 better clarifies what is abuse and what isn't abuse. Because right now, virtually any injury a child sustains, if you can't show how that injury happened, it is suspect. And if it's suspect, it may be abuse. And therefore, you can be substantiated. Um, It requires changing culture, as Bill Young talked about. That the investigator's role isn't to save children. It's to find out whether abuse occurred or didn't occur. Now, we may say, well, wait a minute, their job is to save children, but that's not the role they're in as an investigator. The investigative role is to find out what happened to the best of anyone's knowledge and then make a reasoned determination. It also streamlines the appeal process and it makes timelines reasonable. One of the biggest reasons that people don't appeal is because the timeline in which to appeal is 14 days from the date that you were mailed a letter telling you you've been substantiated. And that mailed letter is the only way you know you were substantiated, and it's the only way you know that you can appeal. But there's no verification system that actually shows that the letter was ever mailed. So if you don't appeal within the 14 days, you lose all of your appeal rights. And the last piece that I would say is that what H-169 does at this point and what what the study, Broken System, Broken Promises, does It makes us all complicit in this process. We are all Vermonters. We now know that this system doesn't work. We know that it causes great trauma with children. It destroys families. And it appears to be wrong more often than it is correct. The governor knows this now. The legislature knows this. The average citizen can know this. We can't allow this system to continue to operate the way that it is. We are complicit at this point because we know this isn't a disease that's come into the state and it isn't toxic waste that's been dumped into the state. This is a state system that is doing this to families on a daily basis. We're talking this morning with Larry Chris, Vermont Parent Representation Center, and Bill Young, former Commissioner of Social and Rehabilitation Services, now Department of Children and Families. They have done a study and uh, talking about uh, Vermont Child's Protection System. Is the system broken? Uh, there's some legislation that um, is addressing this. It also sounds to me... Um, Bill, like education, workforce education is, needs to be part of this. We, we do have problems in the workforce getting people, you know, to do jobs. So there's turnover. There's, uh, maybe a younger workforce providing these services. How does the education piece fit into this bill so that it can be done, let's say, more professionally or, or better at least? Well, the, um, you know, obviously changing the law is very helpful in terms of setting standards um, uh, and being very clear about uh, uh, how many of these decisions have to be made and the process for appeals and so forth. Um, I've always believed leaders lead. You have to have leaders from the commissioner's office on down um, that 
understand the rules, that understand how important these issues are, um, that are dedicated to providing services that are, are done according to law, and also just common standards of fairness and uh, and ethics that Vermonters have a right to expect of their government and, and that we expect of each other. You know, some of this isn't rocket science. Some of the cases I described um, are, uh, you know, somebody made a decision that was clearly not, not an honest one. Um, and, you know, many of these stories are simply outrageous. Um, I'm outraged by them. All Vermonters of conscience should be outraged. And if we want to be able to look in the mirror in the morning, we better be working to reform this this system. We're a small state. There's only about 145,000 children in the whole place. We should be able to insist that our government meets the same standards that we set for ourselves and expect from others. And, you know, that means, I think, for our listeners, insist insist that your legislators pay attention to this and take action to correct it. Um, uh, and it, it's uh, as an organization, it's a matter of, of setting making sure there's a commonly accepted understanding of what the mission is and what's child abuse and what is not. I remember when I first started work as a new district director in Hartford, the supervisor said to me as I was struggling over some case, she said, Bill, you have to understand. Bill, I have to interrupt. Sorry, we've run out of time. But uh, if you want to uh, reach out to the Vermont Parent Representation Center, uh, if you see something you need to know about on this topic, thanks both for being on the show. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here at WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, we will be talking shortly with the mayor of Burlington, Moreau Weinberger, about the recent election results, uh, some of the changes there, and uh, how things are going to move forward uh, under his leadership and a new council. Uh, I am a Burlington-born uh, native. My uh, born in the Mary Fletcher Hospital, which uh, is now, of course, UVM Medical Center. And as a kid, we would uh, take our flexible flyers to the hospital hill and uh, slide for hours and hours and hours. And also uh, behind Mount St. Mary in uh, in on Mansfield Avenue and uh, great fun, kind of interesting to have a sliding hill on the hospital hill that goes down to a main road thoroughfare and uh <laughs> It was uh, probably good marketing. If you got into trouble, there you, there was help nearby. Once in a while, the sisters would kick us off of the uh, hill, but it was uh, it was great fun. Uh, so, uh, uh, Mayor Weinberger uh, is now joining us online. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Brad. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here, and congratulations. I heard you on uh, the nightly news, and you were rather jubilant about um, election returns. Can you give us a little sense of that? <laughs> we did have a good night here in Burlington. I think the city had a good night in a number of ways. The um, uh, you know, we can start with public safety. As, as everyone uh, in Vermont, it feels like, knows, uh, Burlington has been having a major debate about the future of public safety 
since, well, since at least uh, 2020, although really before that in a number of ways. And um, what you saw in that decisive vote, over 63% of voters um, voted against this uh, community control board proposal. I think what Burlingtonians, by a large margin, understood is that police accountability is very important. We're very committed to it here in Burlington, but that control board was not the way to achieve and strengthen our police accountability. Um, I think what the vote did in a lot of ways is um, uh, uh, bring to the forefront how much the city has done since, especially since 2016 already with respect to citizen oversight. We've dramatically strengthened our police commission, our existing citizen oversight board. Um, we've also put uh, other other measures in place to make sure that disciplinary decisions about officers are are being reviewed carefully. Every complaint, every use of force incident is reviewed um, by this, uh, the police commission when it is um, a major incident. Uh, I review it as well with uh, the city attorney, the director of racial equity, inclusion and belonging, other senior administration members. So, you know, we've really come a long way there. What the control board would have done would have really undermined our efforts to rebuild the police department, to restore the level of public safety that Burlingtonians uh, have long enjoyed and, and deserve. Um, and really would have also continued to slow down our efforts to achieve important policing reforms, 21st century policing reforms. So uh, it was uh, it was it, it was great to have the whole community engaged in a decisive vote like that. And I think we'll now really be able to move forward with our, our, our police in a way that has been challenging too for the last two and a half years. And it really was an, uh, a decisive and to me unexpected sort of being in the uh, periphery watching. Um, and I'm hearing what you're saying. You've, you've never been dismissive of oversight. And in fact, um, it's been a big role that, that you and others have played. Yet the, the Burlington tenor has been, uh, air on the side of caution in sort of the opposite way. But the voters said differently this time. Uh, were you surprised by this pendulum swing? Uh, you know, Brad, I was heartened by it. I really have felt uh, the um, public sentiment on this shifting for really uh, since 2020. I think in some ways this was the fourth local election in a row um, that has been nominated by public safety issues going back to, to my reelection and in 2021. That was a very close election, of course. Um, uh, but I, I do think in many ways uh, I – um, prevailed in that race because I took a, a strong stand um, on public safety, vetoing a prior version of this control board, objecting strongly to the um, <clears throat> very problematic vote to reduce the size of the police department by 30 percent. Uh, you know, sometimes democracy takes a while for there to be accountability, but, it, you know, I, I think in every election since then, you've seen more and more Burlington voters understanding that, you know, First of all, we have a great police department in many ways. It is one that is, is we're, we're fortunate to have that has been committed to progressive policing principles while also doing an outstanding job uh, of keeping the public safe, of doing very professional police work. Um, you saw a really interesting example of that uh, just in the last few weeks with the Ann Curran case being closed after, uh, Rita, sorry, Rita Curran's case being closed after uh, more than 50 years of it being open through just generations of solid police work. I think there's been a recognition by Burlingtonians that you can't take that for granted. Um, and uh, also an understanding that, um, that you, that you can go, that you can get police reforms wrong and they can actually undermine public safety, undermine 
progressive policing, that's what happened with the, the, the vote to reduce the size of the department. And it would have happened again here because this proposal, really what I did hear the public understanding, it stripped away the procedural justice elements that are really important to police officers if they're going to work under such a system. It, it really uh, did not would not have treated police officers fairly. We would have had a very difficult time recruiting people to, to work under that system. And Burlingtonian saw it. Yeah, I think that it sounds like real world caught up a little bit and, and voters wanted to see uh, maybe more hiring and, and more law enforcement, which uh, which is great and gives you an opportunity. Yesterday, uh, they were responding to the airport. They're definitely needed and it, they are, like you said, they're, they're a tremendous force uh, under a very competent leader. Um, so you also on, uh, the council, uh, there was a shift in power, perhaps, if that's the word. Uh, can you tell us about that? I do think there was a shift, Brad, in the council. Um, as a result of, so there are five city council elections this year. Um, we have a kind of unusual system where we kind of alternate. We have eight one year and then generally four the next year, but there was an open seat this year that was filled by a special election. And um, the, the Democrats did very well, uh, basically prevailed in four of the five uh, elections. And what that means is that for the first time, certainly for the first time that I've been in office, and really my understanding is for the first time in decades, the Democrats will have a working majority on the city council if you count um, independent councilor Mark Barlow in the New North End who who sought the Democratic endorsement and has committed to caucusing with, with the Democrats. And um, this is, uh, I'm excited about this. I, I do think it means that uh, we should have consensus and be able to move forward decisively with public safety, just, you know, remaining public safety issues and decisions that need to be made, housing reforms, the climate uh, reforms that, that uh, I've been advocating for and really with some of our, 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 our uh, opioid mental health crisis efforts. I think all of that, there should be uh, clear support for now, and um, I'm very hopeful about where we're headed. Yeah, it definitely uh, sounds like there's optimism, and I think that outside of Burlington, people were really pulling for for this election and this vote. Um, I was keenly interested just to, to sort of watch the process as an old Burlington boy, and I was quite surprised by um, some of the, the winning uh, council race winners. Some, you know, I, I don't want to profile, but it didn't look like to me um, some of the candidates were what had you know, were were maybe electable, if that's the word, but lo and behold, they were. Well, I, I do think, um, Brad, in a lot of ways, this is connected to the, the first topic uh, that we discussed. As, as I said, this is the fourth local election in a row that has been dominated by public safety issues. And probably war, maybe the East District might have been where you saw the shift most dramatically. That's That's a uh, a part of the city that there's a really um, even split between progressives and Democrats in that ward, and there has been a kind of shift over time as to whether that seat, which which party prevails in those races. 
uh, <clears throat> with Tim Doherty, um, you had a formal, former federal prosecutor running in that race, uh, local attorney, um, <clears throat> parent with kids in the local schools, and he made it very clear that he was concerned about where uh, <clears throat> the council had gone with some of its public safety decisions and, and that he was committed to working with the administration and, and turning around uh, the, you know, the, the public safety challenges that we've, we've faced over the last few years. And, and he prevailed uh, decisively in, in that race, uh, again, in a district that um, the last time it went, uh, well, we, we, it was, he held the seat that we had just won in December, um, but the last, you know, two years ago that had gone progressive. So there you really see, uh, I think, the, um, uh, that, that the accountability I was talking about before um, of the, the prior decision setting in. I, I think Burlington voters are understanding that we cannot take our public safety for granted here in Burlington, that we have to work for it. We need to elect representatives that, that understand that and will um, uh, that, that will that understands we, we can't pit racial justice and public safety against each other. We need both. Um, and I think that's what you see in that vote and, and some of the others. The uh, ranked choice voting is, is sort of an interesting topic because I don't I don't know that I even understand it and why it is so popular in Burlington. Uh, but it did it did pass again uh, significantly like the the police issue passed. Well, Brad. I got to say, this is one where I don't totally understand why it's so popular either. Uh, we we um, had ranked choice voting for mayoral elections back in the 2006 and 2009 elections, and um, I was quite involved in uh, at least one of those elections, and it really turned me into an opponent of, of the system. I don't think it's good for democracy. I don't think it... Uh, uh, for general elections, I, I, I think it really has this strange dynamic to it where, you know, and, and proponents see this as a positive. They say it makes uh, uh, elections uh, less um, negative, and maybe there is something to that. I think it comes at the cost of a real debate over substantive issues. Candidates are very reluctant to take clear uh, positions in, a, in opposition to their opponents because everyone's worried about picking up second and third votes. It's usually unclear in a tightly contested race. It can be unclear, you know, kind of, especially in these local elections, there's no polling. No one knows who's winning, who's losing. And it, it can really, I think, erode the, the, the debate. And I think it contributed to uh, the outcomes in those uh, races, frankly, where, um, you know, we had some tough years for the city coming, coming out of those elections. And as a result of that, voters previously rescinded ranked choice voting. Um, but uh, it's now another... What almost uh, 15 years has passed uh, since since that um, last experience, um, where there you know you you had a situation where the person leading after the f- first two uh, two rounds of voting was not elected. The the bitterness of that has uh, kind of worn off, and we're going to do an, do another experiment with it. I, I guess the one thing positive thing I see in this is I do think ranked choice voting has some positive role to play in primaries. It, it can be a tool to avoid those situations you sometimes see, Brad, where someone wins a, a statewide primary or, you know, a presidential primary here in Vermont um, with a very small plurality of the vote. Uh, this, this, uh, this, this, I think, does have a, have a role in those situations. And so, you know, maybe this will lead to, to more uh, ex- examination of that. I have a feeling uh, there'll, there'll be more discussion as time goes on. Uh, so you've, you've served as mayor for a long time, leader of Burlington. Um, 
a lot of opportunity uh, moving forward. What are what are some of your higher initiatives right now that you, you'd like to achieve? I'm very focused on housing right now, Brad. We have a, an acute housing crisis that has been building for decades, uh, growing for decades, deepening for decades. Maybe that's the right right word. Because it, it comes out of not building. It comes out of not growing. This is a supply issue. We haven't uh, built nearly enough homes for a long time. The pandemic uh, exacerbated this dramatically between the fact that it, it slowed further the a modest amount of construction that is happening out there, and it led to a significant influx in in new uh, you know, people wanting to live in Vermont because of our outstanding quality of life and all the uh, positive things Vermont has to offer. Um, as a result, right now uh, we we see housing pressures unlike that go beyond anything we've seen in the past. We thought it was bad before the pandemic. Now it's it's horrendous. We have a less than one percent vacancy here in Chinning County. We have seventy people unsheltered living outside on any given night in Burlington. The cost of homes has uh, skyrocketed 35% in the last couple of years, making it even tougher for, for young families to, to get started, making it tougher for businesses to to find homes for their employees and to hire. It, it's really, it affects almost uh, every everything here in Chittenden County. It, it, it is you know, in the, it plays a, a role in, in so many of our issues. And we have been trying to take decisive action on it in Burlington since I came into office. I was, I was a housing builder uh, before being elected. And we, uh, we've, we've tried to go right at the, the cause of this, or a major part of the cause, which is that state and local rules are making it way too hard to, to build in Vermont. And uh, in many ways, we have inflicted this housing crisis on ourselves, and we're trying to undo that. So in Burlington, we have, just to name a few examples, we have totally changed the way the zoning rules work in the downtown to try to make them far more predictable and streamlined and, and tell builders, if you build, you know, if you build within these parameters, you're going to get a permit and you're going to get it quickly. We've eliminated parking requirements throughout the city now. We um, have... Uh, tripled, more than tripled our, our housing trust funds so that we have these local resources to help build permanently affordable housing and, and, and much more. The list of housing reforms over the last 11 years is long. Here's the thing, though. Um, uh, municipalities can only do so much in this. Uh, Vermont has this really unusual situation. I believe we're the only state in the country that makes builders for any substantial project uh, in almost every part of the state uh, go through both a local zoning review and then a state land use review that looks at fundamentally uh, essentially this exact same criteria. The, this double layer of review is, is enormously costly. It Every project, uh, there was a study a few years ago that showed the, the few projects that get exemptions from this double layer of review save on average seven months and $50,000 in fees alone. The study didn't even count the biggest cost of projects, which is every time you have to seek a new permit, it takes hundreds of thousand dollars in legal and engineering and design fees, uh, traffic engineers, you know, just the, the, the number of professionals that need, you need to bring forward to defend a permit is extensive. 
And, uh, and even that, just the name, counting up the cost doesn't completely um, capture the negative impact on this. There's, there's no doubt there's a chilling effect of builders willing to come forward and, and put themselves at risk in such a system. We've got to do something about it. There's a chance to do it this year in the legislature. There is a bill moving that has some very uh, modest Act 250 reforms in it currently. It's, we need structural change in the face of this housing crisis, and that's something you're going to hear me talk a lot about in the, in the weeks ahead. I, I, I really I was encouraged when the governor said to the legislature, challenged them, said we need a reform this session. Um, I, I really hope the legislature will rise to that, that, that challenge. Well, we hope that they will. And so this is very enlightening because it seems, you know, Burlington is pretty built out. But what I'm hearing from you is that there's capacity, but it isn't desirable with with uh, a two-tiered system, including Act 250. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, a lot of people say that, Brad, and I think that thinking of Burlington as, as completely built out is, is the wrong way to understand it. I mean, first of all, we have – a lot more open land uh, in the city than you might realize. There was a study of the downtown, the most densely developed part of the city that was done uh, about 10 years ago that showed that fully more than 30% of the land in downtown Burlington was either vacant um, or, you know, a surface parking lot or underutilized in the sense, you know, like uh, like the mall used to be, um, where you had a one-and-a-half story building dominating three blocks of our downtown, um, you know, and what should clearly be there should, believe, could, should clearly be a higher, better use for that. And we're finally getting that now with the City Place project under construction. You're going to have ten stories of, of homes and, and shops instead of one-and-a-half. Um, and that, you know, but it goes beyond that, and uh, Burlington wants to become, we're in the middle of something called the the Neighborhood Code uh, uh, Review. This would be a new zoning ordinance that would apply citywide that would essentially re-legalize um, older forms of housing that um, have been prohibited in the modern zoning era. We've gone in Burlington and much of the country we essentially created a set of rules that made it only possible to build single-family homes on on very substantial, uh, you know, on, on what can be quite sizable lots. This uh, this neighborhood code is hopes to reverse that and make it possible to build duplexes, triplexes, uh, maybe even four-unit buildings, really on, on just about any lot in, in the city. And if you think about that, that really could um, uh, unleash the potential for thousands of homes to be created over the over the decades ahead. And, and that's exactly what we need. Well, that's very exciting because I'm sure that there are a lot of people who would love to live in Burlington but haven't had that opportunity. Uh, we only have about a minute left, uh, Mayor, and I appreciate I know you've got a council meeting tonight. Is there is there another initiative that you want to just uh, talk about quickly that, that we should know about? Let's talk, Brad, about the, the climate emergency and what Burlington is, is doing to address that. Um, we uh, That, too, was on the town meeting day ballot for the second time. Uh, Burlington voters, over, over right around 65%, I believe, voted to create one of the country's first carbon pollution impact fees at the local level. What this essentially says is it really encourages builders who are – uh, building new buildings um, or renovating large existing buildings to move away from fossil fuel technologies. It doesn't completely prohibit that. Uh, we recognize that there are some situations where that's still necessary, and uh, when builders need to, to go in that direction, they will pay uh, a kind of upfront 
fee for that takes into account the impacts of carbon pollution over the life of that of that building or that building system. Um, and what, what I what it, the biggest impact of this I think is going to be Brad is that any new builders coming in here are going to have to take a hard look at what their options are. And when they do that, they're going to see that when you add the very generous. Uh, green incentives that exist at the Burlington Electric Department, when you add the new incredible incentives that passed in the Inflation Reduction Act um, last fall, that the that these renewable technologies, these electrification efforts that uh, really are the way we're going to address about 70% of the climate emergency, that those are within reach now. They're often, in fact, less expensive when you take into account um, all these incentives. And uh, we really hope it's going to accelerate our move towards becoming a net zero city, which is uh, you know, something we've set the goal of being there by 2030. Sounds great. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Moreau Weinberger, Mayor of Burlington. Thanks for your leadership and joining us on the show today. Hey, Brad, great to be with you. I hope to do it again sometime soon. Sounds great. Thanks. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, your Monday host for WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, next week, I'll be sharing a day with uh, host Pat McDonald. We, we're going to split up Monday and Tuesday. We've got some amazing guests coming in, and uh, I look forward to doing uh, a couple days. Uh, my next guest is uh, coming by phone from southern Vermont, Uh Jesse Keel is Collections and Exhibits Manager at Hildeen, the Lincoln Family Home. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great having you. Um, first off, um, looking at a picture of Hildeen is it looks like uh, it's not too bad a place to live if you're going to, you know, have, have a have a home in Vermont. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of of the origin of it? Yeah, not a bad place to live, and honestly, not a bad place to work either. I bet. Um, <laughs> Hildeen was built in 1905 by Robert Lincoln, and Robert Lincoln was the only surviving son of President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, all three of Robert's younger brothers died very tragically at young ages, and so Robert's the only one to go on and carry on the Lincoln family name. And by the time he builds Hildeen in 1905, he's actually 62 years old. So this is a little bit later in life for him. He's already had a great career as a very successful attorney in Chicago. He served as Secretary of War to Presidents Garfield and Arthur. He serves as the ambassador to England. And then by 1905, he's running the Pullman Company in Chicago still, but builds a summer home in Vermont to get away with his children and his grandchildren. And actually, three generations of Lincolns live at Hildeen until 1975. Amazing. And... So he took a professional career, but not politics. Was was I mean the Lincoln names? Uh, obviously, the Lincoln name. Uh, did he ever dabble in politics at all, or just because of the tragedy of his father? Not so. 
Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Robert um, was never interested in politics. The only reason he serves as something like Secretary of War or serves in that ambassadorship was really because he thought if the president called you up and asked you to serve in your cabinet, you you kind of had that civic responsibility to, to take on that role. But he was constantly a name being thrown around for vice president, president. I think he really easily could have had a pretty tremendous political career, uh, in particular after his time as Secretary of War. His popularity was very high. And, yeah, he never had any interest in politics, very much preferred a private lifestyle. And that's really why he ends up in a place like Manchester, Vermont, right? You know, it's out of the way of Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C. He knows no one's turning up really on his doorstep unannounced to ask him for something. Well, and you mentioned, you know, uh, losing three brothers, uh, the tragedy of Abraham Lincoln, all of that is, is just like so overwhelming that, uh, you can understand that he would not want to take a political course, even though it would be probably easy to pursue. Um, comes to Vermont, um, this 412 acres, um, beautiful, beautiful home built there. It's not just, a home. It's, it's farms, walking trails, gardens, um, you name it. What are some of the, some of the things when people come to visit you? What are the, what are they seeing that they love? Yeah, you really can plan a whole day at Hildeen. As you said, we have 412 acres. So in addition to, you know, visiting the main home itself, there are formal gardens out back. There's kitchen and cutting gardens. Um, because Robert was president of the Pullman Company, we actually have a fully restored 1903 Pullman rail car on property called Sunbeam, and that's accompanied with our Many Voices exhibit, and we really focus on the history of the Pullman Porters actually there. So that's a great exhibit, and then we have two farms. We have a goat dairy, and then we have another farm down on the lower half of our property where we have cows, sheep, chickens, pigs, rabbits, you name it. Um, and then tra- walking trails all over. So we always encourage people to really plan a full day at Hildeen. You could spend a lot of time looking around. And when they come to Hildeen, they, you know, obviously they um, pay to get in. And then do they, are they guided or um, can you sort of wander freely like Shelburne Museum kind of thing? Yeah, it's a lot more like Shelburne Museum. You get to um, check in and you really have access to the entire property to wander around at your own own pace for the entire day that we're open. Um, We do offer guided tours of the home um, at 11 o'clock and then in the summer at 11 and 1 o'clock. And then occasionally we offer other small tours and programs and things like that in the summer months when we're busy. So um, I always encourage people to check in on our website, hildeen.org, look at our calendar um, to see what's going on from day to day because there are special programs and tours. Um, but if people want a tour of the house, they can call us um, at any point, and we'll set up that 11 o'clock tour for them. And that's like a 45-minute guided tour of the home itself. And then, again, they're set free to explore the property. And there's volunteers and docents all over the property to engage with you, answer questions, give directions, um, and really share the history. And do uh, Lincoln historian buffs come to Hildeen to, the, to, to learn things? All the time. Um, yeah, we're a big, big destination for Lincoln um, fans of all types. Um, but we do, we have an archival collection stored within the home, and we do get researchers who come and do research. Um, a couple years ago, we had some research being done on the Lincoln Bible that we have. And then just this past summer, a woman who was actually um, writing a book on Mary Todd Lincoln came to do some of her research. 
And we also, of course, there are historians of Robert Lincoln as well. And so uh, Jason Emerson, for example, who's written sort of the definitive Robert Lincoln biography um, and continues to engage in Lincoln scholarship, um, visits periodically to, to you know, look at things for a second time within our archival collection. So uh, my daughter and I are sheep farmers. We have 10 sheep anyway, and we love that. Do you get involved with the, the farm part of this with your with your job? Um, you know, I do not get that much involved in the farming aspect, but, it, you know, what I enjoy is being able to, even in my role, take the time to explore the property just like anyone else does and go and visit the sheep, the goats. Um, we're coming up on kidding and lambing season, so, you know, we all encourage ourselves to take breaks and go visit um, the little baby animals for a little animal therapy. Um, so my role doesn't directly relate to the farms, um, only in, you know, if they ever have questions about the historic aspects of farming on property. Does that really come up in my purview? Well, for us, uh, therapy of holding a newborn lamb, there's nothing like it. It's quite amazing um, in the whole birth process. So getting back to to visitors, you I assume you get Vermonters, but a lot of out-of-state folks. And I sort of have this image to do Lincoln um, enthusiasts. Do you do you see stovetop hats coming down the walkway, or you know, is there is there dress or garb that people use? Not too often. Um, I have to say, in all my years, I've very rarely seen anyone other than maybe a kid who's purchased a little kind of. We have, you know, some fake stovepipe hats for children in the store. Um, but I will say last summer, I think it was, we did have a gentleman visit who his whole thing is, is being a, a Lincoln impersonator. And he wasn't, or a reenactor, I should say, perhaps. But he wasn't in costume. But even just looking at his face, it was extremely uncanny. He had, you know, the facial hair and everything just right. Um, you know, we also get a lot of educators who are coming and they have such a passion for Lincoln and, you know, do different things in their classrooms and having conversations with them about how they're teaching Lincoln um, is always really interesting as well. I bet it is. Um, now, can people stay for the night or or, or not? No, there's no, no rooms to stay for the night, but we are very close um, to a lot of hotels in Manchester, like the Equinox Hotel, which actually Mary Todd Lincoln, Robert's mother, stayed at the Equinox Hotel in 1864, and that was actually the first time Robert Lincoln visited Manchester, and Robert would continue to stay at the Equinox when visiting town while the house was being built. Mm. So you have um, newer exhibits uh, opening uh, this Friday, March 17th, celebration of Women's History Month, a Lincoln legacy. So this um, this is very gener- generational, remembering Peggy Lincoln Beckwith. And who, who is Peggy Lincoln Beth- Beckwith? Yeah, Peggy Lincoln Beckwith was Robert Lincoln's granddaughter, which makes her, of course, Abraham Lincoln's great-granddaughter, his only great-granddaughter. And she is the last one to live at Hildene. She was born in 1898 and inherited Hildene when she turned 40 in 1938 after um, both her grandparents and her aunt had passed away. She was the next in line to inherit the home. And she lived at Hildene full-time until 1975 when she passed away. She never married, never had children. She lived at the home alone. Um, but she had a really interesting life. And we, because she was the last one to live here, we have so many of her personal belongings in our archive collection and they've not been on view for many years now. And so this exhibit is a great chance for us to get that stuff back out there, get Peggy's story out there, 
um, and really look at, you know, the various things that made up her life, her impact on the community, and then also her kind of legacy connection to her, to that Lincoln legacy of her her grandfather and her great-grandfather. So she was there, so that was a private dwelling until 75, or was there public access before? No, it was a private dwelling until 1975, and then Hildine opened as a museum to the public in 1978, three years after Peggy's death. Okay, and sometimes um, there's renovation, upkeep, and, and the like on on places of, of like that, historic places. Was was that part of this? Was there a lot of sort of maintenance and up upkeep to, to get done? Yes, Peggy, um, although she was a steward of the property and the legacy in many ways, she was not necessarily the... Um, it wasn't her focus to, to upkeep the house. She didn't have a real interest in, you know, whether the wallpaper was peeling or she loved it. She was an animal lover. So you have to imagine, you know, decades of animals um, of all types running through a home. So the house was in pretty rough shape um, after she passed and when the Friends of Hildine took over. And so for many years, through most of the 80s, um, there was a huge restoration effort to really bring the house back to what it would have looked like when the family first moved in in 1905. So now when you enter the home, based Based on photographs and things, um, you really get a sense of what it looked like when when Robert and Mary and the children and grandchildren first moved in. But because it was only the Lincolns who ever lived in the home, almost all the furniture really remained there. And so we had all of the stuff. It was about, you know, refinishing floors, painting, redoing wallpapers, things like that. And, of course, that is something we're still... You know, it's an ongoing project. There's always still, you know, things to get painted and windows to be redone. And, you know, it's it's been a while now since some of the wallpaper went up in the 80s. So it's a constant kind of restoration process in many ways. Yeah, I bet it is. Uh, so Peggy Lincoln Beckwith turns 40. Um, I'm trying to think when I turned 40 if I inherited anything, and I'm thinking I did not. Uh, <laughs> She, she inherits Hildine, this, this absolutely stunning, uh, mansion with, uh, the, you know, the Lincoln family, um, really a getaway place in, in southern Vermont, um, from the world. So Peggy Lincoln Beckwith is, is living there and how does she, how does she integrate with the community? She's a Lincoln. Is she sort of a local celeb or is she a recluse or how, how does she navigate um, her world down there? Yeah, well, you know, you have to remember the Lincolns had been living in the community at that point for a fair amount of time. So I do think to a certain extent some of the novelty um, that might have been attached had worn off. And so and Peggy had grown up there. She, you know, was born. She was probably seven years old when the house was built. And so she had been going to Hildine in the summers from a very young age and then moving there full-time. She actually was living in Manchester full-time before she inherited Hildine. She had a property in Manchester called Bullhead Pond that she was living at um, and then moved to Hildine when she inherited. And so for her, she really just kind of acted like an average member of the community. She had friends. Um, she was very I – mean, she, of course, had inherited quite a bit of money from her grandfather. So she had the, the funds to be very generous. She would support local businessmen. Um, she would take the – you know, support schools going to plays and things like that. Um, and then, of course, she's doing her part during, like, World War II, for example. She has the Victory Garden. She's in the Red Cross Motor Corps. 
She's teaching a first aid class at the school. So very much in, in many ways just an average community member, um, but who I think probably felt a special responsibility as this, this great-granddaughter of, of President Lincoln to, to be an active member of that community and not just be a recluse up in her big house in the middle of the woods. Had to be fascinating for her. In, in your notes to me, you, you talked about um, her personal belongings um, that you know reveal a lot, I suppose. Can we hear a little bit more about that? They reveal her the fullness of her life. Again, you know, she's living in this home alone. She has all this money. She doesn't have to have a career in any typical sense. She doesn't need to get married. Um, so her time in her life is really her own. And I think people think, well, then what did she do all the time? But she, she did an incredible amount of things. Um, you know, she in the early 30s, she was an aviator. She was flying planes. She was landing her planes at Hildine in the fields. Uh, she was a farmer. She brought farming back to Hildeen. Her grandfather, when he built the house, had started farming the property um, kind of, you know, as a hobby. And Peggy really brought that back. She had black Angus cattle and horses. Um, she was a she snowshoed. She cross-country skied on property. She was an excellent golfer. She played guitar. She was uh, an artist of all mediums, you know, oil paint, sketching, carving, and she was an excellent photographer as well. Like, we could talk about the, her hobbies, um, and I could list them for probably years, honestly. There's so many. It's quite remarkable. And was she physically doing um, animal chores herself over over the years as well? Yes. I mean, she as she got older, obviously, she did less. And she did always have people living on property in the farmhouses to help her. Um, but she was not, um, as one of the oral histories describes her, she was not a gentle lady farmer. Um, she was not afraid to get out there, feed the horses, shovel manure. Um, she was very hands-on. She loved being outdoors. There is nothing so real as mucking a barn, I can say with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a caller from Ripton, Nola. I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks. I'll be brief. I know you have a lot to say. I'm currently being blessed with reading John Meacham's book, And There Was Light, about mm. Abe Lincoln. And if you know John Meacham and you know his writing, he's phenomenal. So anyway, we're in the book. We're in the 1840s. Lincoln is thinking, hmm, maybe I should get into politics. And so there's a gentleman, preacher man. His name is Pete, Peter Cartwright. And Lincoln thinks, well, instead of making a big deal of this, I'll just go and hear one of his sermons and see what he has to say. So he goes to the church, and the preacher's up front talking about hell and damnation and death for all who do not come to the Lord. And he says to the congregation, people, come now, be saved. And everyone gets up except for Abe. And then once again, in his booming voice, he says, Mr. Lincoln, if you're not going to heaven, where are you going to go? And Lincoln responds quite quietly, hopefully to Congress. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I just thought, oh, so good. So anyway, um, there's your little touch for Mr. Meacham. Thank you for what you're doing. Have a great day, okay? Thanks for the call, Noah, and the story. Great story. And uh, he did he did go to Congress and to the White House. did yeah. Um, so Hildeen has um, some core values um, that are based on some Lincolnisms, for lack of a better word. Is that is that true? Yeah. Hildeen's mission really, you know, to put it, the, 
you know, most succinctly is values into action. And for us, really drawing on those values we most associate with the president. Um, and I think, you know, just like that story that was just shared, there's so many great little stories out there about Lincoln that really illustrate them. Um, but for us, those core values are integrity, perseverance, and civic responsibility. Um, and thinking about how we, as, you know, the current people at Hildeen can put those values into action, and then also looking how they've been put into action historically through the family. Um, and then we have key actions that go along with that, our, you know, belief in land conservation, historic preservation, um, really big em- emphasis as well in civil civic discourse, which is really what we're most often trying to encourage in our programming and exhibits and things like that. Civil civic discourse. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. It, it, I've done a little bit of that myself. We did a series, Travels with Charlie. It's really bringing two sides together and trying to get um, not a debate but a discussion. Is that how do you promote that? Yeah, it's it's not unchallenging, um, especially in this day and age, to promote that kind of discourse. Um, and we do it through a lot of different ways. Um, I actually think a great example that ties very well into the, the caller that what they caller just shared is that we have a book, book discussion group. So we actually will be later this year reading John Meacham's new book. Um, so if anyone wants to discuss that book in more detail, keep an eye on our, our programming and events page so that we can all come together and have that discussion. And in those conversations about these books, which we read all, all types of things, not just Lincoln related items, um, we're really there to foster a conversation and make sure that all people feel really welcome to share their ideas. Uh, another way we do that actually on the at the exhibits themselves is like at our Many Voices exhibit around the Pullman car, you know, we deal with some very heavy topics um, related to the history of labor and racism in this country. And so at the end of the exhibit, we actually offer a chalkboard with some questions and really leave a place for guests to leave their own commentary, answer a question, chime in on the exhibit. And what you'll see over the course of a week on that chalkboard is conversations happening between guests who never meet each other, but they're, you know, they'll scrawl something underneath somebody else's comment and respond back. And we, before we clean off that chalkboard every day or every week, we take pictures. And so we have this wonderful archive of, of documentation of these this discourse that's not happening between two people live, but happening between people of all different backgrounds of, across time on this chalkboard. Um, so we have to be really creative about the areas that we're allowing guests to have these conversations about sometimes very difficult topics. Sounds tremendous. Uh, I hadn't asked you, is Hildeen open year-round or, or are you seasonal? We are open year-round. Um, we're open Thursday through Monday. So we are closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Um, and then we're closed, you know, on major holidays like Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving. But otherwise, we are open. Uh, and you can find all of our hours and things like that on our website. So we're, you know, to, we're open today. <laughs> so uh, spring at Hildeen looks incredibly exciting. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about it? You told me there's goats and are there lambs coming and all, and all of that and, and what else? Yes, yeah, early early season we have the baby goats and the baby lambs coming. Um, we also have in April two programs coming up um, on our bird walk and our nature walk. So on April 22nd, our Eco-AmeriCorps service member, Rose, um, she does a monthly nature walk, but she'll be doing a specific one to celebrate Earth Day on April 22nd. Um, and then we're content- we do monthly bird walks where you can come early on Saturday mornings and walk around the property and learn about birds. But we're also doing two special workshops, 
One is intro to birding, and one is called easy birding. Um, and more information about all these programs can be found on our website, hildeen.org, and then we'll have additional new programming coming all summer long. So there's lots to always keep track of the website or our Facebook page. Well, I want to thank you, Jesse, um, very much. And if you want to become a member at Hildeen, you can do that as well on their website. Um, and I really thank you. It's uh, up in northern Vermont. We don't hear much about Hildeen, but now uh, now we know a lot more about it. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Brad. And I look forward to everyone coming to see the new exhibit on March 17th. Sounds great. Thanks.